Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. China and the U.S. have agreed in principle, writes Tom Hancock in the Financial Times today, to remove some tariffs imposed in the trade dispute between the two countries, Beijing has said. Commerce Ministry spokesperson Gao Feng told reporters in Beijing on Thursday that negotiators from both sides had agreed to, quote, remove some of the additional tariffs in phases. I'm telling you, Trump is using this to keep goosing the economy, to keep it going until November of 2020 so that he can win re-election. And then all bets are off. And the question is, can he pull it off? And, you know, I honestly don't know the answer to that, but, you know, we're going to find out. Uh, meanwhile, the Trump trade war, this is one of those interesting things about this trade war, the, the Trump trade war. This might also be another reason why he's willing to back off these emergency tariffs, is that uh, this from uh, Laura Clausen over at Daily Kos, in, in around one in three counties in the United States, unemployment is higher than it was a year ago. People are worse off than they were a year ago. One in three counties. And that includes every single county in the state of Wisconsin. Every single county in the state of New Hampshire. And the majority of counties in Michigan, Minnesota, and North Carolina. So by undoing his trade war, maybe he'll provide some employment to those folks. And he's already got his low interest rates, you know, so I talked about that before. And the media is pretty much not talking about this the way that I am. But I, but I think that this is an important thing to note. Either it's the act of a master manipulator or Donald Trump has the best luck there is. Trump, when he came into office, he wanted the Fed to lower interest rates. Because as the Fed lowers interest rates, business activity picks up because businesses can more easily borrow money and expand operations and things like that. And thus, it produces a boost to the economy. So he wanted interest rates to go down. But the Fed was saying, you know, things are good where they are. So Trump declares his trade war with China and starts slapping emergency tariffs on things kind of willy-nilly. That suppresses or softens the U.S. economy. The Fed is saying, well, you know, if the economy softens, then we'll have to lower interest rates. So when Trump's trade war 
softens our economy, the Fed comes in and three times this year they've lowered interest rates. So now Trump has got the low interest rates that he wanted. And now he's going back to China, you know, 12 months in advance of the election, going back to China saying, hey, you know, let's let's end these tariffs. And in fact, China is announcing, you know, phased in, you know, et cetera. So he's getting what he wanted, right? Exactly. He has manipulated, he's, he's used his so-called trade war with China to A, cause people in the industrial Midwest, you know, the former factory workers, to believe that he's fighting for them, that he's trying to bring jobs home. The fact of the matter is, if that was really his intention, if that was really his plan, he would have done it collaboratively with Congress and would have created tariffs that last for decades rather than for a year or two. So why would he do tariffs on an emergency basis that only last a year or two? I'm beginning to think that he did it exclusively to manipulate Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board and the Fed, or the Federal Reserve Bank, that this wasn't just dumb luck, that this was a rather, you know, kind of evil genius master manipulation. And maybe it wasn't even Trump's idea. I mean, you know, maybe it was somebody on his staff who came up with it. But Trump, because he works in business and because he works in a business that's probably probably more than any other business than banking in the United States is sensitive to interest rates. And that's real estate because he works in that business. He understands the impact that interest rates have on the business cycle, on business in general, on the economy overall. And he also knew that the Fed would not lower interest rates if the economy stayed strong. So he had to weaken the economy, which is what he's been doing for two and a half years. And now, as a consequence of that, the Fed keeps lowering interest rates. So now he's got his Fed stimulus going just fine. And now he's working, he's trying to work out this deal with China. And probably before China announced it, Don Jr. and Eric bought another billion dollars worth of stock someplace or made another bet. And they're, I mean, somebody has made over $5 billion on these bets using apparently inside information from the Trump administration. And I'm thinking it's probably people in the Trump crime family. But anyhow, now China comes out and says, oh, yeah, we're going to phase out over the next six months. We're going to phase out over the next period of time. We're going to have gradual phase out of these tariffs. Well, every one of those tariff phase outs is going to goose the economy even more than the interest rate cuts. Thus, Trump seems to have like managed to manipulate this whole thing in a way that's going to give him the economy he needs to get reelected. What do you think? On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author most recently of Understanding Marxism. His website is democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at Prof. Wolf. Dr. Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So I'm curious your thoughts. You know, there's this argument going on right now about whether a, you know, what's the best way to pay for Medicare for all and what kind it should be, but B, whether Senator Sanders bet that if you tell Americans, yes, I'm going to raise your taxes, but on the other hand, your total income is also going to go up because your expenses are going to go down versus Elizabeth Warren saying, you know, basically corporations and rich people are going to pay for this and you're not going to pay any extra, you know, saying, no, I'm not going to raise working class taxes to pay for Medicare for all, number one. And number two, how does a wealth tax, which is part of Warren's plan, and I'm not sure if it's part of Bernie's plan or not explicitly, how does that work and how does that fit in? There's a lot there if you want to riff on it. Okay. First of all, just a note of comparison. Other wealthy countries, I'm thinking here particularly of those in Europe, 
have solved this problem, and they've done so for decades. So the notion here in the United States that there's something excruciatingly difficult or unworkable or overly complex is really special pleading by the folks who don't want it. There's no basis for it in fact. The Europeans have been able to provide basically medical insurance and coverage for everybody, every citizen, from birth until death. That was a demand of the people there. It became unstoppable after World War II, and it has become the reality in these countries, literally, as I say, from Scandinavia in the north to Italy and Spain in the south and everywhere in between. If they can do it, the simple answer is, so can we. Yeah, it was the same thing in Canada, by the way. Saskatchewan did this first, and then the whole rest of the, yeah. Exactly. And, and, And there are many other countries, even poor third world countries, have responded to their people's demand for proper health care by providing these kinds of insurances. I just wanted to use the Europeans because they're more like us in, in other ways and the wealth is there. But even poor countries do this because health is considered one of those basic qualities of life that a decent society takes care of, like educating its children and so on. So uh, let's turn then to, to the issue here in the United States. We could do it in a number of ways. We could provide the same kind of Medicare for all or whatever other term you want to use for it in a number of ways. But before I go into them, I think there's a basic mistake. A lot of the numbers thrown around do only one side of the ledger. Namely, they look at what the literal cost would be to put such a program in place. But as every other country's Uh, history shows, if you have proper medical care and insurance, the actual cost of the medical care has to be what it costs to put it in place, and from that you have to subtract all of the savings uh, that would occur if you had a properly healthy population. I mean, we have been, here in the United States, our longevity has been shrinking for the last three years. We have very bad numbers when it comes to the number of uh, days in the hospital and the number of babies that lived through the first year and all the other usual metrics of health care. So we are paying way too much. And if you had a proper health care system and a proper insurance administered for the people as a whole, a vast amount of the money we now spend would not be necessary. Remember, the medical costs we have in this country include paying a literal army of people working for insurance companies whose job it is to deny us the coverage we thought we had, and then an army of clerks and, and secretaries and others working for doctors and hospitals whose job it is to argue with that first group in order to get the payments made. I mean, the waste and irrationality of this system would be dramatically reduced if, as happens in other countries, a proper Medicare for all included a real commitment to preventive medical care and not just the curing of a a person already sick. Imagine the savings. I just recently read an article that indicates we spend on the order of $200 billion a year 
on the obesity problem in this country. Medical care, because it turns out if you're obese, you have more medical expenses per year than if you are not. There's a huge industry pandering to uh, people that are overweight with all kinds of real and largely phony cures that they can spend too much money on. It just, it goes on and on. All right, having put that aside, how would you pay whatever the net cost is? Well, both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren do have wealth taxes. They emphasize them a little bit differently. But let's take Elizabeth Warren simply because I think it's better known, even though I think Bernie's is as good or better. Elizabeth Warren wants to tax, and let's be clear about this, the wealth of people over the first $50 million. So if your personal wealth would be $50 million or less, and that is 99.9% of the American people, the wealth tax would not apply to you. So it's a tax that goes only after those, particularly the billionaires, but those who have an excess of 50 million. It applies one uh, rate to them and a slightly higher rate to people who have either 100 million or 1 billion. There's stages and there's debates over what exactly the stages would be. The amount of money that would be raised is enormous. And that's because even though the number of people who have this kind of wealth is very tiny, they have an enormous amount of wealth for each of them, and hence it's a very targetable amount of money. When you're in that stratosphere, here's a little footnote for those people who think that there is going to be some kind of problem for these wealthy people. If you were to tax them at the rates that Elizabeth Warren proposes, they are now the richest people in America, and after they paid that tax, they would still be the richest people in America, basically because the amounts of tax she's imposing on them, single digits for most of them, is not going to change their situation. Their wealth handled by hedge funds goes up more than single digits a year anyway. So what the tax does is basically cancel out part of their gains. If anything, they will continue to become even richer, which makes the whole thing kind of crazy when you think about it. Now, last point. We already tax wealth in the United States. Here is a point that Elizabeth Warren does not make, but which I think would make her case stronger. It's a simple point. Here's how we tax wealth. The federal government does not do that. It taxes income, but it doesn't tax your wealth. The state governments don't tax wealth in this country. They mostly tax your expenditure, and some of them tax your income. But the local governments in America do tax wealth. If you live in a community, you get an assessment every year from your town, what the value of your home is, your automobile, uh, your small business inventory, if you have one. And then there is a property tax levied on that property. But please notice, this is called a tangible property tax because it is levied only on things you can see and touch, like land, homes, business inventories, automobiles. Here is something that neither the local, nor the state, nor the federal government taxes in the way of property, stocks and bonds. This is very important for people to understand. The wealth tax that has existed for many years in this country falls on homeowners who pass it on to the renters they have. It falls on people who have a home if it's the only wealth they have. Where a wealth tax doesn't fall now is on the wealth held in the form of stocks 
and bonds and things like that. And it's a simple thing for me to say, that's where wealthy people hold the bulk of their wealth. They can't spend that on homes and cars, and so they have it as investments in stocks and bonds. And therefore, what really is the issue here is are we finally going to extend the wealth tax so it doesn't just hit middle-income people who have their home or lower-income people whose rents are higher because the landlord is recovering what he pays in property tax on his house? Are we finally going to stop discriminating and extend the wealth tax to stocks and bonds? If we did, that alone would raise enough money for the Medicare proposal. So the issue here has nothing to do with resources, and it has nothing to do with complexity. The issue here is that the people who have the wealth do not want to be taxed even for something as fundamental to social welfare and well-being as the health of the population. Okay, so maybe it should be marketed as we're going to extend the property tax beyond just houses to stocks and bonds for rich people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just call it the property tax. And I think I've heard Elizabeth Warren make that analogy, but uh, it's a great sales position or a great way of explaining it. Professor Richard Wolf. I I hope she hears it. I I do, too. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info. You can tweet him at profwolf, W-O-L-F-F, and rdwolf.com is his other website. Thank you, Professor Wolf. Okie doke. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. Breaking news. I finally found a topic everyone can agree on. No matter what party you support, the ideas you believe in or opinions you may have, we can all agree on the fact that aging stinks. Under eye bags, fine lines, wrinkles, crow's feet, no one can escape it. Luckily, I found just the product to help. It's called Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates all your key signs of aging. And the best part is it works in minutes. Now that's newsworthy. No bias here. Plexiderm works. I tried it, and you should too. No invasive surgeries, no complications, and the best part is no one has to know you're wearing it. Uh, I look just like me, only 10 years younger. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, code TOM. Tom Hartman here with you. You know, I have been talking for years, I mean, literally all 16 years that I've been doing this show, about the crisis in manufacturing in the United States. And, you know, when we first started the show, it was, it was a process that was still evolving, although it was largely set in stone by the mid to late 1990s. And that was this neoliberal, so-called free trade policy that Ronald Reagan started promoting back in 1980. He and his advisors and his vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, came up with this treaty between Canada and Mexico and the United States called NAFTA. That treaty was written by the, at least our part of it, written by the Reagan administration, fine-tuned during the 
first Bush administration, Reagan was not able to get that thing. It, they didn't get it done. They didn't get it out. And George, w, George Herbert Walker Bush did. His administration, you know, put this together during Reagan's administration. It had been, let's open the world to China. You know, the free trade is going to save everything. And there's actually an ideology behind this. And this is the essence of neoliberalism, the new liberalism, which is what neoliberalism means. And the word liberal there is used in the, in the European context, in the British context, well, all of Europe, that a liberal means, and, and Australia as well, that liberal means people who are in favor of the marketplace running things rather than the government running things, essentially. You know, in Europe, what they call liberal here in the United States, we call libertarian. So this neoliberal policy that came into being in the 1980s as corporate money and billionaire resources just poured into the Reagan administration in the 1980s as a result of the Supreme Court in 76 and 78 blowing up, taking off the books laws that regulated money in politics. As a result of that, this idea that a marketplace is better than a democracy or that a marketplace is its own democracy not only took hold of of the Republican Party and the and the Reagan followers but took hold of the entire United States I mean back in the 80s I remember hearing these kinds of ideas being promoted on national public radio they were being promoted and discussed by people across the political spectrum and basically here is the argument if you want to know what's best for the country, if you want the best things to happen for the country, then you need basically a consensus. You need a vote. And you need a mechanism to make it happen. Well, if the vote happens every two years or every four years, that's awful slow, right, to elect your representatives. And then the representatives themselves have to go through this long process to write legislation, you know, and question expert witnesses, figure out how things should be done. And then it goes through the legislative process. It gets made into law and the law doesn't become into effect until the following year. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just all slow and cumbersome and doesn't always get things right. And there's, there's some truth to that. Actually, it was designed to be that way to some extent because, you know, you don't necessarily want major decisions about how the economy runs or how your country runs or or who we are as a people to be made you know super fast and without a lot of thought and consideration so what the milton friedman crowd the neoliberal crowd the libertarian crowd says the chicago school crowd what they said was well there's another place where that voting is happening and that place is the marketplace and in the marketplace there's literally a billion decisions a second being made in the united states Every time somebody walks into a store and decides to buy a Snickers bar instead of a Hershey bar, that's a decision. That's a vote. Every time somebody walks into a clothing store and just decides to buy, you know, Columbia Sportswear rather than Cliff's Edge or whatever it is, that's a vote. And that the marketplace is aggregating this data so rapidly and there's so many hundreds of billions of uh, essentially votes being made every day within the context of the economy and the marketplace that there's a there's a hive wisdom there there's a collective wisdom there and in fact there's some truth to that this is how good products theoretically anyway rise to the top and bad products fall away and get replaced and sometimes those cycles happen you know within a matter of months 
And so, you know, one company is up one day and then it's down the next day and, you know, whose products and now, of course, that that kind of naively ignores the power of advertising and it very naively ignores the power of monopoly power, you know, of Facebook buying, uh, you know, basically every com- every potential competitor that comes along and incorporating it into their product, whether it's their messaging app or whether it's Instagram or whatever it may be. That whole theory ignores monopoly and therefore, you know, monopoly market power, you know, try being Apple's competitor right now or Microsoft's competitor. They're so well established, they're so well entrenched or Google's or Facebook's for that matter. So it ignores that, but you know, it, it does make a certain amount of sense to a lot of people. And so what happened between 1981 and today, and it's still going, was that the Republican Party and about half the Democratic Party threw into this threw in with this position that that the neoliberals were promoting that the the you know the from von Mises to well to Milton Friedman I mean you know really he's the the most famous American who was involved in this stuff Friedrich Hayek you know I mean the the Austria it was called the Austrian School before it was called neoliberalism before it was called the Chicago School. And, you know, what they're asserting basically is that billionaires know best, the marketplace knows best, we should be listening to the richest among us and all this kind of stuff. And that free trade all around the world, that if all countries trade with each other, their interests will align because they are trading with each other. And that alignment of interests, in other words, keeping their own economies going, that alignment of interests will prevent war. I mean, this argument started out as kind of a this is this is yes this actually is democracy that was the initial argument of the wisdom of the marketplace and then the wisdom of the international marketplace was marketed by people like francis fukuyama back in 1999 with i think it was uh, the title of his book was the end of history and the last man or something very close to that and and you know a number of these and by the way fukuyama has since renounced his embrace of neoliberalism but there were a number of these neoconservative and neoliberal thinkers who were writing books and writing these deep tomes and thinking about this and you know basically making this assertion others of us and i'm in this crowd and bernie sanders was in this crowd and was on this program for 11 years who are saying wait a minute there is a place for nationalism not toxic nationalism, not like Nazi nationalism, but where the country makes decisions that are best, the best thing for the country as their first priority. And therefore, these trade deals that are the best thing for the big corporations, but not necessarily the best thing for the country, need to be carefully scrutinized. And in fact, we should keep in place a tariff-based trade system or we should be looking at something like most European countries and most Asian countries are doing now of, uh, you know, a VAT tax, a value-added tax, which serves functionally as a tariff that discourages imports of cheap competition from overseas and encourages export of manufactured products from your own country. But we have not embraced that. And, 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 and then Trump came along. And basically took the words right out of Sherrod Brown's mouth. I mean, Sherrod Brown, the, the, the Democratic senator from Ohio, one of the most outspoken and articulate proponents, people in favor of a semi-protectionist trade policy. And Trump was like, you know, we're going we're gonna to use tariffs and we're going to stop this, which 
by the way, is the right thing to do. He just did it wrong. He's doing it by executive order. He's doing it by declaring a state of emergency. And, you know, that is not going to last beyond his presidency. So no company is going to build a factory based on Donald Trump's tariffs. Whereas if he had worked with Congress and gotten our trade laws changed and gotten those tariffs put into place permanently, then companies would be bringing the jobs home. But Trump doesn't know how to do things. But the, here is where this is leading us, or this is where this has led us. This is from the Financial Times, Peter Spiegel and Andrew Edgecliffe Johnson, writing from New York. And I'll just read you a few sentences of it. The U.S. Secretary of the Navy has warned that the, quote, fragile American supply chain for military warships means the Pentagon is at risk of having to rely on adversaries such as Russia and China for critical components. Richard Spencer, the Navy, the U.S. Navy's top civilian, I'm sorry, it's not the Secretary of the Navy, it's the U.S. Navy Secretary. The, Navy's, the U.S. Navy's top civilian told the Financial Times he had ordered a review this year of the contractors. What he's concerned about is certain high-tech and high-precision parts that we just don't make here in the United States anymore. And we're having to buy from China or Russia or from countries that are aligned with those countries, particularly China. He says he's particularly concerned about China. Again, quoting from the article, Mr. Spencer's efforts to improve the domestic supply chain have been hampered by repeated government shutdowns and haphazard federal budgeting in recent years. In other words, the incompetence of the Trump administration. This has undermined his ability to convince domestic suppliers that there will be a steady stream of business for them if they invest in building out their manufacturing capabilities which is what I was just saying. You can't go to a company. He says, right now we're sliding back into a temporary budget extension, which I think is a bloody shame. And, you know, he, he's basically going to these companies and saying, you know, I really need you to make these parts that we're buying right now from China or from, or from countries that are aligned with China or companies. One of the examples in the story is a company in Italy that is now aligning itself with China. They're taking Chinese money, and it's part of the whole Belt and Road thing. And this company is making stuff that is absolutely critical to American warships working. And he's like, we can't have this. It needs to be made in the United States. But no factory in the United States wants to make it because, you know, Trump's tariffs will probably go away when Trump goes away. And there's no, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to have a customer two years down the road when government is coming to you and saying, would you please invest $50 million in building a factory? We need a rational trade policy. We need to repudiate neoliberalism. We need to reject this whole Reaganista experiment and return to what was working for us in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We need to actually and genuinely bring our jobs back home and establish, you know, and reinforce our national security in the process. CBD oil has got a lot of uses, and a lot of people are discovering the benefits of it, including me. New Leaf Naturals is the CBD oil we're using. CBD oil it doesn't get you high, so you get the benefits of medical marijuana without the marijuana. The CBD is made from hemp. It's non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. The brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals, NU Leaf Naturals, the highest quality CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, no additional additives, grown right here in the USA, 
and the only ingredient is hemp, so it remains in its most pure and simple form, and it's legal all across the country. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's n-u-leafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to nuleafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Grown right here in the USA, nuleafnaturals.com. Code TOM, that's newleafnaturals.com. Richard in Rio Rico, Arizona. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind today? Yes, sir. Thank you so much for my continuing education. I just wanted to reiterate that this is nothing new in this society. Uh, I got out of the Army in 1976, went to work for the railroads, manly, you know, masculine job. I'm telling you, I've heard every racist comment. I married a Mexican girl from El Paso, Texas, and I'm telling you, I've lived this nightmare for 47 years. Wow. Uh, my final job, and I could go on and on. I mean, my, all my jobs, my boss told me I was not allowed to work on call. I was not allowed to work overtime. And I, when I confronted my supervisor, he told me my wife was a nurse and that if my wife made as much money as that. I didn't need the extra money. I was not included. So this was about your wife being Hispanic, basically. Yeah, just living that. All I had guys put guns to my head. They're imagining guns to my head and told me they had the solution for my problem. Because you're married to a Hispanic woman. And I've always been very liberal, yes. That's astonishing. Richard, thank you for sharing your story with us. I'm, I'm sorry to hear how it's turned out, but you know, good on you for, for staying married 47 years. Louise and I will be there next week, 47 years. Thank you, Richard. Tom Harbin here with you. On the line with us is Morris Pearl. Morris Pearl is the former managing director at BlackRock, Inc., huge investment company, billions of dollars under management. And he is with the Patriotic Millionaires. Patrioticmillionaires.org is the website. You can tweet him at Morris underscore Pearl. Morris, welcome back to the program. Great to be in your show, Tom. Thank you. It's great having you back with us. I, 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 uh, there was an article a couple of days ago, and I, I'm sorry I don't have it right in front of me. I talked about it on the air, and, and off it went, where uh, some very wealthy person in the United States was talking about, um, was, was speaking to, uh, in public, to one of his colleagues, one of his bank, banker colleagues, as I recall, saying, you know, uh, who was hysterical about Elizabeth Warren, um, essentially saying, you know, so your taxes go up a little bit. You're still going to be incredibly rich. What's, you know, get over it kind of thing. And I, I'm curious, you know, your take on all this and, and, uh, and you know, where the patriotic millionaires are at on this. Yeah, I mean, I think that the United States is the greatest country in the world. And we have the greatest innovation and the amount of job creation because we have a government that has enough money to do stuff and provide services for our people and provide education and roads and infrastructure and all those things. And the idea of that we'd be better off in a country with no taxes and no stuff just completely befuddles me. Has it ever been tried anywhere on earth and worked, this, this libertarian idea that government really basically should just do police services and army and that's it? Well, I mean, yeah, you have countries like Sudan... But I don't think anybody wants to move there and invest there. There you go. You know, it's completely libertarian because they have no government at all. Yeah. Um, or, or you know, what? it's been tried to small scale in the United States with places like Kansas. And I think that's seen as a failure. You see job being created in you know, places like New York and San Francisco or happen to be today. 
mm. not in places like Kansas that has low taxes and not enough money to provide services for their people. So if if the top tax rate was to go back up to, let's just say bef- where it was before Reagan. I mean, you know, be, before Reagan, it was 74 percent. Actually, before LBJ, it was 91 percent. But just take it back to where it was before Reagan uh, started whacking at it. How would that affect you? How would it affect your uh, multimillionaire and billionaire colleagues? And 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 what and how would it affect our country? You know, it wouldn't affect my day to day life at all. And I think it would actually be to my benefit because I invest in companies like um, Verizon and Apple and companies like that that make money when people pay their bills every month. And it'd be a lot more people subscribing to iTunes and buying iPhones and doing all the kinds of things that people do when they have enough money to be able to support their families. So I think that would be good for investors. We certainly had that, as you said, before Reagan, like from the end of World War II until Reagan was elected. And then a country was doing well during that period. Lots of people had jobs. Lots of fortunes were made. Things were going very well. Yeah. You know, the, the, uh, this, whole, this whole idea that, that somehow taxes are bad. I, I, I think I told you this story the last time you were on, but just very quickly, I, I was watching um, Bloomberg a couple of years ago, and they were t- talking to some, uh, a German, very wealthy German guy. And it was an American reporter and he and he said well, what what is the tax you pay in germany and the the german businessman said oh i think i pay around 54% and the american journalist was like how can you stand that and the guy was eh, no problem and then he the three times the american journalist came back to these taxes and finally the guy the businessman and you know looked looked him in the face and you know with this <laughs> kind of disdainful expression and said i don't want you know the guy said why why are you willing to pay these kind of taxes and the guy said i don't want to be a rich man in a poor country and how do, yeah. we, how do we communicate that to your colleagues who are supporting Republicans? Well, I think we are. That's what the Patriotic Millionaire is all about. That's why we're having a conference today in San Francisco that's being live-streamed on our website that you mentioned. That is great. We are trying to do that. We are trying to talk to people. We are trying to remind you know, billionaires like Ken Langone that he built Home Depot back when he was paying a 70% tax rate on the top dollars that he made. And that, that people like that have nothing to complain about. Or to fear, apparently. Or to fear. I mean, yeah. what they have to fear is if we don't change things and that people will simply stop putting up with this anymore. We're afraid of people protesting with pitchforks and when they don't have enough money to pay for stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough one. In the 30 seconds we have left, uh, Morris Pearl, tell us about the PatrioticMillionaires.org conference in San Francisco. Sure, we're having a conference today here in San Francisco, 2 o'clock local time at Manny's, uh, 16th in Valencia. And we're going to have academics, we're going to have activists, we're going to have political leaders, and we're going to talk about how we can tax the rich and make America the kind of country where I grew up and got rich in again. That's remarkable. Good on you. Uh, Morris Pearl, thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Great to be in your show. It is always a pleasure talking with you and and, uh, hearing from people who really understand how things work, you know, at the highest levels of economic society in the United States. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So would you like to watch the Tom Hartman program? All three hours of our program 
anytime you'd like. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. And you become a supporter of the program through Patreon. You have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Thank you. Let's see here, uh, Vicki in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Vicki, what's on your mind today? Um, I uh, want to make a comment about PG&E. Okay. Um, it was expressed with your guest, and I want to emphasize it, in that I was talking to a friend, and I said, with all this this experience people are having with a, a company that's run by PG&E, surely we're finally going to overtake this privatization and, and have it be run by the government and the state so we can have it benefit the citizens instead of the, uh, the shareholders. Uh, shareholders. Yeah. And so she said, no, I don't think that's where the problem lies. She says they're not only paying off their shareholders before they go ahead and, and uh, take care of the company itself and the people servicing that, you know, the people that... Right, before they are, trim the trees, you know, yeah. Right. But they're spending billions of dollars employing lobbyists that have bought off our legislature, and that's why they continue to stay in business, even though we have decades of evidence that they have uh, really done a terrible job. Yeah, and this is, this is something that the Supreme Court legalized in a big way back in the 70s, and corporations are, have found, and, and, and in fact, it's, it's amazing. I mean, there's literally articles about this in like, you know, Business Week and The Economist and Forbes and Fortune. Corporations have found that, you know, they can invest a million dollars in a new piece of machinery and maybe over a 10-year period make 10 or 20 million dollars from that investment but they invest a, if they invest a million dollars in buying a half a dozen politicians they can make a billion dollars in return i mean the the returns are are an order of magnitude greater in buying politicians than they are in buying new equipment um, which is really really a tragic commentary on the state of our politics and and an indictment frankly of our supreme court it's one of the things that that caused me to write this new book about the supreme court the hidden history of the supreme court and and the betrayal of america because they did they have betrayed the the, the united states and and this was not you know a congress this was not presidents this was you know right wing ideologues on the supreme court vicky that brought this about exactly that's the point and so it's never going to change until we change the laws therefore we have to change the, yeah. the people on the supreme court so we can change the laws and then have the laws that are there enforced i agree and 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 frankly i think we also need to pass a constitutional amendment this is you know when Pete Buttigieg first kicked off his his campaign back in the day one of the things he said was going to be a cornerstone of his campaign was a constitutional amendment to say corporations aren't people and money is not speech. And that got me really enthusiastic and really excited. Um, but I haven't heard him say it again. I don't know if that's still his position. Um, he was also at one point in favor of single-payer health care and, and, in fact, tweeted out, I, P. Buttigieg, say here, now, and forever, uh, I support uh, single-payer health care. And then he kind of backed away from that. So we'll find out. But, but, I, but I, just the fact that that, um, quote, moderate Democratic candidates acknowledge this problem of this system that they're all entangled in 
is, I think, a good thing. And, you know, hopefully more and more people will and, and we can we can take on the Supreme Court. And we can take on these these structural inter institutional problems and then we can you know, clean up politics. But first, you've got to clean up the you've got to clean up the environment within which politics works. What, what Trump refers to as the swamp, although he's you know, just trying to replace it with more alligators. Vicki, thank you for the call. Stephanie in Everett, Washington, you wanted to jump into the conversation about the car tab vote that just happened in Washington state. Yes, Tom, and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate your show. Uh, listen to you daily. Thank you. Uh, I usually don't get to usually don't get to call in because I'm working, but mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to jump in and say that generally I agree with you as far as the big money and how they um, put money in to try to change, you know, sway people's votes with the tax on the car tabs is a little bit of a different issue. I feel mm -hmm. um, because. Um, that in the state, and I talked to some people that I really, uh, friends of mine who are just kind of tired of paying taxes in general. Sure. And um, the in the state of Washington, we have I've, I've heard the most regressive tax system in the state of or in the country. Yeah, well, one of them because you don't have an income tax. Yes. And we collect taxes on sales tax and property tax. Correct. Right. So my point is that I think that. Really, we need to listen to the voters on that because, oh, by the way, the, um, I heard that Amazon and the unions are really putting a lot of money behind not passing that initiative for mm -hmm. the cheaper car tabs, and it didn't work. So I didn't hmm. hear hardly any um, any ads against it. So you think this or, was basically just a taxpayer revolt, people saying, you know, I haven't had a raise in 30 years. In 40 years, actually, wages have gone down for working people uh, since the initiation of Reaganomics. Um, I haven't had a raise, and damn it, I don't want to pay any more taxes. Bottom well, line. Well, I think it's very. I think it's complicated with this particular issue because the we've we've had some, and I'm I don't follow it really closely because I don't live in the city of Seattle, but they've had a lot of money for this sound transit deal with the the rail through. Um, Right. connecting uh, Seattle to, to Shoreline and all those things. And people are thinking, you know, I'm not going to be around. I'm not going to benefit from it. People right. can't really. So, and, and plus, our legislature didn't do a very good job of putting a value on the car tabs like they said they were going to. So it's complicated. But the people that I talked to that I respect said they're just kind of sick of. So just to, just to clarify tax. for me, Stephanie, and I should have asked the earlier yeah. caller this, was the, the, the ballot initiative, the resolution, was it to... Uh, uh, to not have an increase in the amount that you pay to to register your car every year, you know, to get your new tab that you put on, or it's was it, or was it to lower an already existing high uh, level of, uh, of fee? It's to make it a, a flat amount rather than a percentage of its value, and I, I can't. Oh, tell so right you exactly now it's based on the value of your car. So, Correct. so if somebody's got a $70,000 car, they pay a higher amount than somebody who's got a $10,000 or $5,000 clunker. What's wrong with that? Correct. And well, and I what I understand is depending on where you live, the different municipalities can collect a different percentage of for different local transportation projects depending uh, on where you live. So like I live in un unincorporated Snohomish County. I think our tabs are pretty low. Mm -hmm. um, they used to be higher and then Tim Iman's actually been in the area for a while trying to pass these. He's kind of a lousy guy. Anyways, yeah. um, 
You guys so need to get an income people, tax. <laughs> I mean, it's just because nice. you've got so a wealth tax like, on middle class people. That's your property tax. It's, it's, what, it's what Elizabeth Warren wants to do to stocks and bonds for rich people. Um, and you're paying right, and a I, wealth tax there. And you've, got, and you've got your sales tax on pretty much everything you buy. And that's my point, Tom. And this is what happened to actually energize me because we were sitting watching the results come in with my county or my district. Mm -hmm. And I said, what, we have a democratically led uh, legislature and our governors. Uh, yeah, uh, Jane, yeah. We need to be, yeah, we need to be putting pressure on them to like restructure the tax. And I don't know how that works. This is, I'm all new to this. But I do think that we need to have the conversation. And I do understand that the Republicans, that's what they're using for the message to get people to vote against Democrats is that we just want to raise taxes. So yeah. it, it's something to look at. I get it. I get it. Fascinating. Thank you very much for the call, Stephanie. Great to hear from you. John in Mentor, Ohio, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan, John. My issue today is about Trump's push for a new NAFTA, and my source is Ryan Grimm's piece last week for The Intercept. It's titled, Centrist Democrats Have a New Idea to Win Re-Election, Ignore Labor, and Give Trump a Major Trade Deal. So my question, Congressman Pocan, after three years of asinine policies and executive orders that have defied logic, science, and human decency, why would we even pretend to consider throwing this drowning administration a life raft, life raft especially in the Rust Belt, when we know any 2020 Democrat, especially someone like Bernie Sanders, would craft a far superior trade deal uh, with our neighbors. Are you, are you, is the Progressive Caucus on the same page as me? And will you guys stand strong in opposing any centrist push for this? Yeah, Jeff. So first of all, let me just say, Ryan Grimm is one of my favorite investigative journalists. I think he does an amazing job, and he's got a great book out right now. And um, in the piece, and I did read the piece, I think he was referring to uh, Sherry Bustos. There's a story about the head of the DCCC, what she might have said at an event. Um, she has denied saying it at an event that they should get it done regardless of what labor thinks. Uh, where we have been as a progressive caucus, and we've had principles on trade for a long time, is that uh, you have to take the environmental and labor provisions that are marginally better language than what's in NAFTA uh, and put them into the trade agreement. Right now they're in separate outside of the agreement. If they're strong enough that we've agreed to the language, there's no reason they're not in the trade agreement proper where they're enforceable. We've had to open up previous trade agreements for this very reason. So we want to make sure that labor and environmental concerns are actually in a trade agreement uh, or else it's a non-starter. And then secondly, there's a big, wet, sloppy kiss to Big Pharma that gives biologics a 10-year protection, not just in the United States, but also in Canada and Mexico. They didn't even ask for this. This is something that we put in. There's no reason to put a big gift to Big Pharma in a trade agreement. Um, there's a few other issues, but those are the major ones. If you can address those, we've got to deal with a little bit in Mexico to make sure that they're actually making the labor... Uh, unions, real labor unions, they've passed a law, but now they've got a lot of work to do in the enforcement of it. Um, but we've been real consistent on that. So um, I, I don't think, from everything I have talked to Nancy Pelosi, and I've talked to her many times on this issue, because I've been one of the people who works on trade since the day one in Congress, um, if we do not have the labor provisions in a place that people like Richard Trumka uh, is supportive, you're not going to see the House Democrats supportive, because we're in the same place on those labor provisions. To what extent do you think it's possible that if the Democrats take back the Senate and take the White House in 2020 and hold on to the House of Representatives, that we could have a shift toward a, uh, you know, a more rational trade policy, that we could abandon the neoliberalism we've had since 1980 
and and really serious, you know, take a serious run at this stuff. I, you know, Trump just throwing out tariffs on an emergency basis doesn't work, but right. Congress passing legislation that's semi-protectionist actually could. Your thoughts? You know, I'm usually a silver lining guy, Tom. In this case, I think, unfortunately, Donald Trump has hurt the cause that many of us have had. In some areas, he's right. There's nothing wrong with targeted tariffs. But because he's used it so poorly, the word tariff now is is bad. And he's done a lot of damage to, I think, some of those goals. We should be able to try to, but we are in a tougher place because of him. Yeah. Jeez. That makes perfect sense. It's very unfortunate. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Listen, on this OK Boomer phenomenon that's occurring, Yeah. if you bear with me for a minute, there's a very important linking that needs to happen here between these millennials and uh, the boomers that they're frustrated with. Um, the key distinguishing characteristic is safety, security, and continuity, which the boomers had in their employment, their homes, their pensions, things of that nature. Now, well, Probably about we, half of the boomers. I mean, only we well, only yeah, hit 60% of America being middle class uh, by 1980, and it's been a decline since then. It's now below 50%. But, but yeah, I'll no, give no, you that. And, 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 were, and mostly the white boomers. But yes, I get your right, point there. Right. And, and that trickled down, pardon the use of that phrase, right. um, communities got stronger under a, a good portion of them uh, coming into a working wealth uh, right. through the boomer generation. And I'm Gen X. I'm, I turned 49 a couple of weeks ago, and I'm right between these people. Mm -hmm. And we were the generation that was rushed into college. Oh, everyone's, every high school graduate needs to go to college now, where a generation before, it was a select few. So, so these millennials are looking at us Gen Xers, a lot of us, really beat up by student and other debt. Mm -hmm. And they're looking at us and the parents who raised us, and they're saying, how did you screw your kids over? And they didn't. They were just along for the ride, the, the corporate takeover that changed work in America largely over the last 40 years is who is to blame. And, and these two groups should be united in, in fighting that because, I, I mean, they're, they're family to each other. They're, they're grandparents and grandsons. And by the way, a lot of us Gen Xers are raising the kids of a lot of those, those youngsters who were into opioid problems and, and other problems. It's mm -hmm. really a, a tangling of generations, and it's all because of largely the economic collapse of our work life in America. There's no security, no future planning, so everyone's in kind of a panic, and we're all in it together. They need to realize that. Yeah, and there are two things that brought this about, by the way. One is that the, the, uh, the Supreme Court in, uh, in 76 and 78 ruled that money was speech and, and basically turned our entire political system over to billionaires and big corporations. And, sure and, and they just decided to start screwing us aggressively. And, you know, I mean, right to the point of like, you know, airlines just, you know, s literally stealing pension funds and things like that. But then on top of that, the Supreme the Court... Right. And also in the 70s, I think it was 73, I'd have to go back and look and see what year it was. But the Supreme Court adopted Robert Bork's theory of monopoly in a decision called GTE Sylvania. 
And mm -hmm. what Bork said was... I remember my grandfather was a telephone employee. I remember the breakups. Yeah, there you go. And so this was post that. And, and, and now the Supreme Court has kind of made it the law of the land that... A monopoly is only a monopoly if it increases prices. If it increases prices to consumers, if it keeps prices low, it's not really a monopoly. Which is not what the what the people who wrote the Sherman Antitrust Act or the Clayton Antitrust Act or the or the Anti-Monopoly Act of 1954. Not what any of them had in mind. They were trying to protect small businesses. They were trying to protect local communities. They were trying to protect employees. They were trying to protect consumers. Uh, you know, and price was irrelevant. But this was this idea that Milton Friedman came up with that that. It really enamored the Republicans, particularly Lewis Powell, and the Supreme Court finally ruled on, and that has really screwed us as well. Eric, thank you for the call. John in Seattle says, you disagree with me. What about? Well, I do. I'm a Seattle Democrat. My wife is a Hispanic. Uh, you know, I agree with you on just about everything, and like you, I'm willing to vote for any of the Democratic candidates to get rid of Trump. Where I disagree with you is the way you read the polls. And give me, give me just a minute to explain it. So you say that uh, in the polls, and I agree that the polls say this, that people uh, are, favor Medicare for all, that people favor forgiving student debt, etc. Right. And yes, the polls will say that. But you look next door to Washington, which just this past week voted down the car tabs. Now, the car tabs, that is basically the car registration fee you pay every year the tab is what you put on your license plate to show your your licenses is uh valid uh and, and up to date 54 percent voted along with his right wing nut named tim iman to get rid of that tax so now it's only 30 dollars, which right. now is going to hamstring transportation funding right so what i'm saying is a lot of people say yes i favor that until they see the bill no, and it's it's. I don't think it's until they see the bill, John. I think a lot of people favor that until they see ad after ad after ad. I have not been watching that much TV here, and so I I haven't seen if there were any advertising uh, advertisements against the car tax. But you'll recall, I mean, you live in Seattle. I'm sure you were seeing this the, the same thing I was seeing. You know, when when uh, when your governor first proposed a carbon tax and then you know a group got together and got it on the ballot in the election uh, 2018 um, that that carbon tax was polling at 70 percent statewide in washington state and we were just barraged i mean you couldn't you couldn't even watch 30 minutes of television without seeing an ad where that former republican secretary of state who looks and talks like mr rogers came on and said well this this very well-intentioned carbon tax is going to simply destroy the economy of our state. And, you know, the problem is the, the money in politics, in my opinion, John, is not just, you know, people are unwilling to pay for things. Oh, no, and I agree with you completely. What I'm saying is you get that money in politics along with we're going to send you this bill. I mean, look, look at what money did. John Kerry, a war hero, was turned into a coward and a traitor. And, and this was like, what, how many years ago? 12, 14, 16 years but, ago. But so what's your solution? And, and, and Do we just give up and let the big money rule? I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that, that I think we need to make sure that our candidate is not going to be somebody that they can do that too. Oh, that's and impossible. We have many candidates. I mean, look at John. There was that's nothing wrong with John Kerry, and he actually was a war hero. And they and and they turned him into into something else. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, the the things that they went after her for. I mean, I could. You know, I have policy disagreements with both Hillary and Bill Clinton, but 
you know, her use of a private server, you know, that's being done right now by the White House. I mean, as we speak, you know, use of private servers. And, and you know, it was a non-issue. And the whole Benghazi thing was essentially fabricated. I mean, there, was, there, were, there were similar instances and more of them that happened during the George W. Bush administration, but nobody cared. They will smear. They will do their best to take down whoever we put up. We could nominate Jesus Christ, and they would, and they would start calling him a socialist and a communist. Well, of course, he helped the poor. I mean, my God, my how point. more radical can you be than that? My point. Yeah. So there, there is, I mean, I think the, the last thing that the Democratic Party should be saying is we're afraid to nominate this person because this is how the Republicans are going to characterize them. And I mean, that's the main message that's used against Bernie Sanders, for example. He uses the word socialist. Elizabeth Warren doesn't use the word socialist, and I get that, you know, and I, you know, maybe she's into doing some smart messaging. But Bernie really had no choice. He's been using that word for 40 years. Um, democratic socialist, yes, but still, the, the word. But I, but I don't think that that should stop us. I don't think that that should, you know, dissuade us. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that uh, Elizabeth Warren is proving this, as is, as is Bernie Sanders, by, by continuing to aggressively promote their Medicare for all programs, their debt-free college programs, and things like this. I, I don't think the Americans, uh, the, the American people in general, are quite as dumb as the Republicans think they are. I, you know, I, I get it. They can always get people to show up for Tea Party events saying, you know, get your, get your government hands off my Medicare. Um, you know, it was funny. Uh, it's an example. You know, Charles Koch used a bunch of money and, and made it happen. And, uh, but I don't think they can win forever, John. I just don't. I think that the, 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 there's, a, there's a point where people just start saying, wait a minute. I hope you're right. No, I hope you're right. I mean, I'm just scared to death. I am just scared to death that, that we're going to... I think probably two-thirds of Democrats are scared to death that we're going to have another four years of Trump. And and I know, you know, people call in, talk about it. Friends and neighbors and family talk about it. People are waking up in the middle of the night, having a hard time sleeping, all these kind of things. We all need to take a good, deep breath and then get out there and get active. That's the cure for all of this is do something. John, thank you for the call. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. There literally is no better therapy for depression or anxiety than getting active in something that you care about, and it'll have the result of helping produce the outcome you want. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.